0: Turn with me this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we will begin reading tonight at verse 13, and we'll read into chapter 5, ending at verse 10. Now... This will be our last time looking at 2 Corinthians together. Uh, Next Sunday night, I'll actually be away, have a personal event um, that was scheduled. And that wouldn't be so awkward if that wasn't one of the last Sundays here. But unfortunately, we'll have to be away next Sunday evening. And uh, Dale Hagwood will be coming over to preach. And then the following Sunday, we'll have our uh, fellowship farewell dinner on the evening of the 11th. This is our last chance to work through 2 Corinthians tonight. But we'll look at chapter 4 and verse 13. We'll read into chapter 5, verse 10. So hear now God's word. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident, and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Amen. we'll end our reading there and let's pray for God to open our eyes and teach us. Father in heaven, again, we bless you, the great God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think of how Christ is described as the word of the Father. And that he speaks to each generation, that the record there of you speaking in your word, generation after generation. So Lord, we have the completed word, but we would pray, pour out on us your blessed spirit that we too might know the things you have taught us. Even today, thinking of and the church calendar, reflecting on the day of Pentecost, when the spirit was poured out to do uh, the work of the risen Christ and calling people to salvation and Remaking your people and forming them into the people of God. Well, do that for us tonight and equip us for your service. And we ask these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have enjoyed, even though we won't get to finish the book, I have enjoyed working through uh, these opening chapters of 2 Corinthians here on Sunday Nights, And I hope that it will inspire your own reading and study of the letter. We, we won't finish it corporately, but perhaps on an individual level you'll want to keep reading. Or if ladies or men want to form a Bible study and work through the rest of the book, then that would be a great, profitable study. I've said several times in this letter that it is a book with immediate relevance because Paul is so concerned to describe what an authentic ministry looks like. Uh, If you're here tonight, you probably care about your church and you probably care about ministry being done right. And with us being in the process of looking for a new pastor, several of you are even on the pulpit committee, the, the more we can look at the word and get an idea of well, what's the sketch of a good candidate. How does Paul outline what a, what a good, authentic minister looks like? Well, the better position we will all be in to make a good choice as you move forward. So last week we looked at the opening verses of chapter 4, where Paul begins to describe an authentic New Covenant ministry. You have that detailed contrast at the end of chapter 3 between Old and New Covenants, So Paul applies that theology moving into chapter 4. How would the new covenant express itself? How can you tell that you're dealing with a new covenant ministry? Well, he highlighted two ideas in verses 1 through 12. It has integrity and it gives value to suffering. It has an eternal perspective on suffering that sees the good of God's kingdom as the ultimate goal. He's going to pick up that baton of affliction and run with that a little further tonight. He's going to answer an assumed question. He never puts this question to us, but you can tell it's beneath the surface. It's driving what he writes here. And that question would be, why would someone persevere in a calling that's characterized by suffering or difficulty? Why keep doing that? Well, let's look for the answer as we consider further authentic New Covenant ministry. And there's two parts to the answer that Paul gives. First, authentic New Covenant ministry hopes for eternal benefits. Looking again at how Paul ends the previous section in verse 12. So then, he writes, death is at work in us, but life is is at work in you. And there Paul he alludes to the fact that his ministry sometimes brings him face to face with suffering. Death is at work, Paul writes. It doesn't mean that he's sick and dying. It's just the idea that he's often exposed to death or he risks death often for the sake of the ministry. And Paul doesn't always give us details about these situations, he will refer to them throughout Second Corinthians, sometimes with a little bit of details when he talks about being shipwrecked or, or beaten you know, nearly 40 times. We could read Acts you know, where he was almost stoned to death in one instance. There was another time where there was a citywide riot. Maybe that made him fear death. These are events that Paul encountered because of gospel ministry. And that's not to say that no one in this world ever encounters danger. It's not to say there aren't jobs that might bring you face-to-face with danger. It's not even to say that all ministries bring you face-to-face with danger. But in God's providence, Paul faced danger because of the ministry. He wasn't stirring up trouble. There wasn't any evidence that he was acting improperly. Because of the truth and the impact it was having in the society, there was opposition and when Paul faced that, it, it raises the question of, okay, if a person is trying to administer God's truth or, or maybe do good in God's name, that the calling God gives you isn't proclamation, but it's doing good in some way, and it were to cause trouble, it could raise the question, is this worth it? And Paul speaks of that beginning in verse 13. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Paul leads into his answer by citing Psalm 116.10. And all you really need to know there is Psalm 116 employs one of those frequent themes in the Psalter, a reflection on the Lord's deliverance out of difficulties and... And death. You you can find that in a lot of Psalms. Paul probably reaches for Psalm 116 simply because it's one of the Psalms that taps into that idea of God delivering from death. He just wants to tap into that rich vein, so to speak, in order to back up what he's saying with the authority of God's word. He's saying he and his fellow ministers, we have the same spirit of faith, just like that psalmist learned in his walk with God. So we have learned when things are rocky, God will deliver us. And Paul even goes on then to give us the content of that trust in verse 14. Does he just generally trust God? No, even more specifically, verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So notice the outlook there. Okay, we might face death, but should we die, there's a resurrection to come. Or even should we live, there is the end goal of being raised with Christ. But even more than that, he looks ahead to the final result of his ministry when the church itself is presented before God and his son at the end of time. We're not just going to die one day and, and everything will be over and, and heaven starts. There, there's kind of like a wrapping up, a summing up, an evaluation. Paul will speak to that in just a moment. In which the church is presented to God in its finished work. And Paul says, I know that hard times now are worth it because they're producing something of eternal value. Something that will be revealed on the last day." Day. And I'll be honest, that is a perspective that I often forget about. You know, you get in the day in, day out, weekly jobs that you're doing, and you forget, wow, that there is an eternal outcome to all of this when God receives his church. So for ministers and for people, any effort you make, any effort we make to improve the church for that day, to work now for what is coming, any effort is always worth it. And that gives a little larger perspective, does it not, on what we're doing here tonight and what you're doing with your life. That's Paul's hope and goal. And then he expands on it a little bit in verse 15. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. If if I can be a conduit of God's grace leading to that last day, then that makes hard times worth it. Grace is reaching people. When it reaches people, it causes thanksgiving. that The grace reaches people and and transforms their lives. It restores them to their creator. They give thanks to God. Others give thanks to God. And all that results in the glory of God. So this just drives Paul through hard times. And then he applies these insights in verse 16. Therefore, because of all this, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. A little bit of a restatement of what he's already said. My my job may bring with it some troubles, and those cause suffering. They, They cause me to waste away. Nonetheless, Paul and his companions do not lose heart. And then he adds one more perspective. Not just the hope of eternal reward, But the grace he needs day by day, he says, we are being renewed day by day. There's future resurrection, but it's already working now. There's a a restoring, renewing, refreshing work that God does in his people that enables them to persevere. And verse 17 then expresses a truth uh, that is perhaps part of the grace that God gives And that it enables Paul to take this eternal perspective on his sufferings. He writes, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Here Paul introduces this truth again. That really does give meaning and value, hope and perseverance in the midst of suffering. That they produce an eternal Good. It's not wasted time. It's not meaningless pain. They're producing an eternal good. And in fact, so good is that good that by comparison, Paul could call his suffering light and momentary, or a light bundle, as one commentator renders it. It it may seem like so heavy, but Paul says, in comparison with what it produces, it's a light bundle. That's a pretty strong statement for Paul to make in light of some of the sufferings that he has shared. But the eternal perspective enables him to relativize his suffering. Viewed in that perspective, they are light and momentary. Now, I don't want you to take the point of Paul's statement as if he's being heavy-handed with you. You know, if you suffer or if you hurt and you lament and it's a hard time, that, okay, well, you're dropping the ball. Paul says it should be light and momentary. Why are you bothered through it? When you go through deep waters, the experience can be intense. I don't think the point of Paul's statement is for us to act like they aren't or to pretend they don't hurt. Paul, Paul in other places, can express very honestly the grief and pain he feels in his sufferings. However, Paul does give us hope that's immediately applicable when you suffer. And his point is to give you that larger perspective, (laughs) to point out that there is something worth persevering towards and through when you suffer, that pain and suffering can and should and will produce eternal benefits, that there is an eternal reward ahead of you and it's worth it to persevere through those times, and to look to see what God is trying to show you, what grace he is presently giving you. That, that suffering wouldn't in any way derail you or distract you from the prize. And what then is that prize? What is that reward that NIV calls it an eternal glory? I think that obscures, though, Paul's very picturesque language. The ESV reads, an eternal weight of glory. And one commentator renders it an eternal tonnage of glory. I think that gets at the contrast a little bit better, doesn't it? Light momentary afflictions, eternal tonnage of glory. In light of eternity, our sufferings are light and momentary. They do hurt, but they are not ultimate. And there's something great and glorious ahead That's worth fighting for. And for some reason in God's providence, he's even ordained it where those hard times prepare us for the eternal that is coming. To experience God's glory, to enter his presence, to be conformed to his image makes the experience of living in a fallen creation worth it. And an authentic new covenant ministry will hope for those eternal benefits. And so in light of such hope, Paul expresses his resolution in verse 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Since temporary suffering produces eternal glory, Paul focuses attention and his energy on what matters most, the unseen eternal goal, the glory of God experienced by the church. So that is the first uh, answer to his question, what makes persevering worth it that we hope for eternal benefits? Now here's the other part of his answer. Authentic new covenant ministry hopes in eternal life. Hopes for eternal benefits, hopes in eternal life. So we're rounding into a new chapter, but but it's really the same theme as we come into chapter 5. Paul will focus his hope so, so he continues the the look at suffering but focuses his hope even more specifically on an object experiencing eternity after death. And Paul will describe that hope in verses 1 through 5 and then expresses longing to be with the Lord to experience that hope in verses 6 through 10. So notice how Paul begins as he describes this hope. He begins with confidence, and often we find confidence like this in Paul's writings. Verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So here Paul, like I said, he's looking ahead to this time when present sufferings will end, and Paul will enjoy his eternal Reward. Now there's two ways we could look at this. When the believer dies and immediately enters into heaven, experiences the presence of the Lord. Paul does refer to that right here in this passage. Others still see here, even in this passage, a reference to the resurrection body. When Paul refers to the heavenly body, he's talking about what God is preparing, that is, for the eternal, the the body that inhabits the new heavens and the new earth. So so that works in some places where Paul seems to speak of the ongoing eternal hope. Again, we can maybe look at it as a both-and. Paul is thinking of entering the Lord's presence, but he also knows where that ultimately terminates. Paul does refer to both, the believer experiencing God's presence after death but also the resurrection body. So so I'm taking it just with that general, eternal focus in these verses. So let's look at Paul as he develops that. He he continues the contrast between now and then in verses 2 through 3. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Notice the language both of clothing and residency. In these verses. So, this heavenly body or the future resurrection body, it's like a garment that one puts on to cover up the weakness of the present body. Again, we still inhabit a fallen creation where there's suffering. And Paul says, you know, the day is coming when you enter eternity, you want to be suitably dressed. I think Jesus even told a parable about that, comparing eternity to a wedding. So you you want to be suitably dressed on that day, you want to have a suitable habitation for eternity. Well, that is what we long for, and that is what God is preparing. Paul then fills that idea in verse 4. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. When we get this new garment, this eternal dwelling, then the temporal suffering life, it'll be not only over, it'll be overwhelmed. It'll be swallowed up by the eternal imperishable existence. Again, for Paul, what he can't see is more real than even what he can see. And verse 5 then circles back to one of Paul's main ideas from earlier in the book. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. See how Paul is trying to hold all the parts of the book together in order to focus on the hope? The Spirit that comes through the new covenant, this is the Spirit that produces new life. This is the spirit that transforms believers into the image of God. And that is the spirit who guarantees the eternal realities. So the spirit's work in us now guarantees, it's the down payment of the full realization of all our spiritual benefits in the age to come. And thus Paul in the final verses, so that's his hope, in the final verses expresses his desire to experience these things. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. That last phrase, for we live by faith, not by sight, it's almost an aside. He's saying, okay, until death... Until we obtain these blessings, we have to sojourn towards them by faith. But again, it's this idea of this is the eternal hope. This is what we're moving towards. Of course, we get there by faith, not by sight. So it's interesting. It's almost kind of an aside, a side comment. But it could almost be a great summary, could it not, of the entire Christian life. Because I trust God's promises, I sojourn with hope and persevere with difficulty by faith, not by sight. Verse 8 then even expresses Paul's preference. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's almost as if Paul's saying, hey, don't get me wrong. I'd rather be done with this suffering stuff now. I'd rather be with the Lord. I'm ready to obtain the heavenly reward. I'm ready to finish my course. But I persevere in difficulty because that's what God's providence has called me to do. Living by faith is harder than living by what you can see. So until God grants that eternal sight, Paul keeps it in view by faith, verses 9 through 10. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, rather good or bad. Paul is tapping into a theme that we already saw in Romans 14. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And so we strive to live as those who expect to be recognized as righteous on the last day. We're persevering towards that goal. So we make it our aim now to please him. Paul says eternity is coming, and it has great benefits. So I want now the life that I live to count. I want it to be one that is pleasing to God. And why? Because one day, on this final day, when the church is presented before God, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God to receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And by the way, that language of the judgment seat, sometimes it's been, it's been uh, focused on, Overly specifically on Christians as if, okay, Christians have this very specific judgment they face uh, where they you know get rewarded for how they live their life for how they spent their time for whether you live for God or not. The, the Bible seems to speak of one final judgment when all nations are assembled before God and people are evaluated based on the life they've lived if the evidence of their life reflects that they weren't a Christ follower, that is, that they were not one who had faith in Christ, then the warning is made there of judgment and eternal death. But for those who are in Christ, who trust in him alone, there is still the analysis of their life, again, not seeing if the good works outweigh the bad, but whether to see there is the evidence there of true faith. Sometimes when Paul speaks of that day, because in this letter he's speaking to Christians, it has much more focus on believers. Paul's thinking of the day when the church appears before God, when he's examined for the life he lived. But, but the point there isn't to say there's this tit-for-tat weighing out of how you used every moment of the day. Rather, it's this, I know I'm persevering towards this goal when we all stand before God. I want to please him now. And have a life lived then that is evaluated well before God. But his hope in the gospel is that because he believes in Jesus Christ now. He believes that he will receive a favorable judgment on that day. And he trusts that the evidence of the whole life lived will be one that shows him to be someone with true faith. And so he moves towards that day both with hope and with sobriety. Knowing a great reward is coming. And because of that, aiming to please God. So what can we take away from this passage? Two things. One, I think good ministers and a good ministry, a healthy, authentic ministry, will always operate with that consciousness that we will give an account to God. And and the idea there is to produce a healthy fear. Not an anxiety that second guesses everything, but a sobriety of what we do does have eternal value. And so there should be humility now, earnestness to seek God and to please him, but also hope in God's grace and in God's mercy, that what he's doing is of eternal good. What you're doing now has eternal value. And so that brings me to the second application, which is that God's people have a future hope, and that gives hope now. So when there's difficulty in whatever calling God's given you, whatever circumstances he's given you, the hope of the future provides an anchor for now. The goal of the future generates perseverance now. We are becoming the kind of people now that will inhabit God's new creation then. and One of the tools he uses is suffering, is difficulty. But it is worth persevering towards to become those restored image bearers who are ready to inhabit God's new creation and bring some people along with us on the way and even work now for the good of God's world as we move towards that last day. So let's pray to that end. Ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of the Spirit that you poured out on your church. It gives an eternal value to what we do. Help us to keep that in mind and do, Lord, through the ordinary work of the ministry and through the lives we live for your glory, accomplish eternal good. And when we are skeptical of it, Lord, give us faith that we would walk by faith, not by sight. When we're forgetful of it, remind us, help us to live with this kind of eternal perspective. Give us the wisdom to know how to use the things you've given us in this life to even enjoy the gifts you give Him, but to integrate that with the eternal perspective and to persevere towards that end, and to know your love and grace. So I pray for our church and all the needs that are here or that we know about, that you would meet them and that you would show mercy and grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's sing then for our last hymn, Hymn 650. I will sing of my Redeemer. 650, we can sing verses 1, 2, and 4. Stand with me.